Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guests today are Voss Baskin Professor of Law, David Trubeck from the University of Wisconsin Law School, and Distinguished Professor of Law Emeritus Richard Abel from the UCLA School of Law. Professors Trubeck and Abel are here today to discuss the recently published symposium issue that they co-edited entitled The Short Happy Life of the Yale Program in Law and Modernization, From the Cold War to Comparative Legal Sociology and Critical Legal Studies. The issue was published in the Brazilian Journal of Institutional Studies and features essays from Bryant Garth, Aphrodite Giovanni Paulo, Duncan Kennedy, Boaventura de Souza Santos, and both Professor Trubeck and Professor Abel. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor Trubeck and Professor Abel. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. So let's just dive right into this article and talk about what you were writing about in the symposium issue. So in a nutshell, what was the Yale program in law and modernization? It was a multi-year program supported by the U.S. Foreign Aid Agency, USAID, to try to understand how law played a role in development in the what was then called the third world uh, and how um, programs might be uh, created to uh, improve law's role in the development process. And it involved uh, uh, both lawyers and also social scientists and people from the United States and from uh, many other parts of the world. It went on for about seven years and was terminated uh, after that. Uh, and it was operated out of the Yale Law School uh, by a, a team of, of professors of which Rick Abel and I uh, were the major uh, people managing the program. And how did it come about? Well, I had been an AID lawyer for four years, and I had worked in both in Washington and, and in Brazil. And I kept asking myself, why doesn't AID have a, a, a field of development? They had everything else. They had business development, agricultural development, educational development. Oh, these were all well-established specialties with elaborate staffs and big budgets. And I said, why isn't there a law one? And I kept asking that question. Uh, and when I got into uh, academic life, uh, shortly after I joined the Yale Law School faculty, I saw an announcement for a new program at AID to look at non-economic aspects of development. And they had a lot of money. And so I uh, got together with another AI, former AID lawyer who was then associate dean of the law school. And we put together a proposal, seven double-spaced pages and a budget of $1 million for a five-year program. $1 million in today's dollars would be $8 million. This was sort of a miraculous thing, and there it was. Uh, I'm going to add a an autobiographical note, and maybe Dave will then want to do, do the same. So I met Dave when I came to interview at Yale in um, May or June 1967. Um, and and I we must have talked about this, but it was still very much in the early stages. Uh, I then went uh, to do field work in Kenya, uh, and I was in Nairobi late that fall, and I got a letter from Dave 
ecstatic that he had gotten this money um, and, and very energized and eager, eager to go forward with it. And I, in my innocence and political naivete, wrote back saying, I'm delighted for you, Dave, but I wouldn't take a penny from USAID. I, in the end, took many pennies from USAID. My initial reaction was that of someone who had been abroad by then for two and a half years, very much alienated from the United States, um, very much um, uh, disaffected about the Vietnam War and uh, uncertain about what my future role would be. I think this is a point that makes up, make a point that uh, I think it's very important. Uh, we were all concerned, at Rick more so than I, um, but all of us about the possibility that AID would want to shape and influence our, our work and the program. This never happened. In fact, sometimes we began to worry that they were, weren't paying any attention to us. Um, there really was absolutely no pressure of any kind. They let us do what we wanted to do. Uh, indeed, uh, you know, I think it sort of slipped off their agenda uh, by the time we were up and running. There wasn't anybody there who really cared very much about it, which was fine for us and helps explain how the program evolved in directions very, very much different than those which were originally articulated and which AID would have supported. Right. That kind of worked to your advantage a bit to have slipped off their radar to allow you to grow maybe as you saw more fit than they would have. Exactly. We sent them a, a short annual re report. I do not believe anyone from AID ever came to Yale. And I think I went there once to talk to them in the five years, uh, oh, in, in the four years that I, I was the co-director. So what were the original goals? Well, I sort of explained it. Um, it it was we articulated the goals they they agreed i don't think they had not asked for anything uh, in other words there was no call for proposals that defined a program like this there was a very broad program on non economic aspects of development and it was very open ended even then even with that broad definition it was open ended so we could shape it the way we wanted the goals were to to create a body of literature uh, on the role of law and economic development, which of which there was very little at the time. And secondly, to train a group of people who could contribute to this literature and then train a group of people who could be uh, actors um, carrying out development policies in various parts of the world. It was a development studies, development training kind of concept with a very strong emphasis on the need for in-depth theoretical work because of the paucity of available materials at the time. Um, again, I'm going to give my different perspective because Dave came out of USAID. Um, I did not. So I'll tell you where, where I was coming from and what I was doing in the program during the years it was active. I, I had graduated from law school and gone to London to study at the School of Oriental and African Studies to do a PhD in African law. Um, that turned out to be basically two years of enjoying London and reading voraciously, but almost entirely on my own. 
In the course of that, I discovered that there was this emerging body of literature by legal anthropologists who uh, had just begun to publish both in the US and in the UK. Uh, and that was, uh, that, that for me was a, a, an eye opener. I found it very attractive. Uh, I then went off to Kenya for a year of field work and looked at the ways in which the primary courts had been changing and tried to develop a, um, a perspective that would allow me to make use of the materials that I was collecting. So when I came to Yale in January 69, after that year of fieldwork, I was really trying to find my footing in a field that was just beginning to emerge and try to figure out a framework that I could use make sense of what I'd learned about how law was operating in Africa. So the, my, my focus was not development uh, at all, really. Uh, it was trying to see what was happening on the ground, how it was changing, um, and how you could analyze that sociologically. And both of those outcomes seem to have a long tail. Like this law and modernization group has seen a lot of development since then because of this. I'm sorry, David, go ahead. No, no, I, 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 uh, I wanted to say that Given the flexibility and the open-endedness of the way we ran the program, uh, there were many people who came to us with, without any particular um, commitment to development as such, um, but whose work we thought uh, would cast light on the issues we were trying to understand. Um, and so it never, in, from the very beginning, it never, it was not tied to an immediate programmatic or practical uh, agenda of development projects. So why did you call it law and modernization? Yeah, why did we call it, why did we use modernization, not development? That's the really interesting, that is an interesting question because it, it reflects the time and the sort of ideology of American foreign aid policy at the time. Modernization theory had been developed in American universities by people, many of whom then went into the Kennedy administration uh, and, and were influential in shaping the, um, the foreign aid program that came out of the Kennedy administration, which was a major change and expansion of US foreign aid at the time. Uh, and modernization theory had been adopted by the US foreign policy establishment um, uh, as the sort of guiding uh, light, the, 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 the source of guidance for development. Uh, be, and it had the, <laughs> it, it was very conducive to American influence because it portrayed the process of development as a unilinear process um, leading from tradition to modernity and ending up with advanced capitalism. And the United States was the highest embodiment of modernity. Therefore, if you try to transform these countries into American style countries, you were modernizing them. You didn't have to call it Americanization. You could call it modernization. Uh, this uh, this was a kind of ideology of, of, of foreign influence that was uh, very powerful, and it was accepted in the social sciences of the time as 
as a legitimate theory, uh, subsequently has come under tremendous criticism. Uh, and there's a whole literature I could show you if this was visual, my bookshelf of books attacking and critiquing modernization theory. I've got like nine of them over there. Uh, so it was a very problematic formulation, but of course it was a necessary formulation to get money from the government that was using it as its main ideological um, uh, symbol for, uh, for the foreign aid enterprise. I would just add, uh, this really compliments Dave here, that uh, as he said, there was a significant and actually quite well-established social scientific literature that used the dichotomy of tradition and modernity. It goes back into the 19th century. You can see it in Durkheim and in Weber, even in Marx. Um, and then the early 20th century anthropologists, Malinowski, Radcliffe Brown. Um, so that, that, that counterposition was was essential, and you know, in, in in some ways, I was doing the same thing, but almost in a mirror image. I was using modernity as a foil to try to understand tradition, whereas to some extent, the government was more interested in ways of transforming tradition into modernity. Anthropologists, and I think I was infected by this, were interested in trying to preserve tradition. Uh, and I think it's important. To, to note, because Rick quite rightly traces the, the genealogy of this dichotomy and the idea of modernity uh, way back to classical social theory of the 19th century. Um, but the particular version that was uh, operational in, in AID and in American foreign policy at the time was a very Americanized version uh, of, of it and, and one that was shaped in a way uh, that, um, uh, that made the United States seem like the pinnacle of modernization, uh, something that was not part of the classical theory necessarily. Hmm. That's fascinating, just the choice of words and language to get the funding to see how these things have changed over time. So how did the program change over time then? That is how it started. I think the program changed over time for me in, uh, primarily in that Dave and I collaborated on creating a course and teaching it twice. He actually taught it a third time, which was called Com Comparative Legal Sociology, in which we tried to merge our quite different backgrounds, Dave's in modernization theory and uh, economics um, and and mine in legal anthropology, um, and that forced each of us, I think, to read while while widely in the other's field, um, and to develop what what uh, uh, again a, a theoretical approach, which is what I am still using um, fifty years later. So. Uh, that for me was the primary transformation. Well, of course, it, it, that also reflected the shift from, from an immediate focus on contemporary development issues and uh, the pragmatic tasks of 
reforming legal institutions in particular countries, which is the way I had started my way of thinking about this, um, just drawing on my own personal experience as an AID lawyer, which is recounted in, in my own chapter. And uh, uh, moving away from that to much broader questions about law in society and, and uh, the role of law in, in various forms of, of transformation, social and political and economic transformation. So we, we, we move from the immediate and pragmatic to the broader theoretical and then back, of course, uh, and that's part of the story. So I think that was a big change. Of course, also, the program became um, much larger uh, as we attracted more people and different voices, uh, particularly bringing more people from the third world or, and from Europe, uh, as well as from the United States. So it, it began, I think what's important is that the program became a space of its own. I don't think you can understand the history of the law and modernization program and some of the things we're gonna talk about as we move ahead here, uh, unless you understand that the scale of it was sufficient um, to, to allow us to really have our own little world within this uh, law school, um, because we were able to support you know, half a dozen professors, at least part-time, uh, and a large number of fellows, master's students and other kinds of fellows and, and undergraduate students. I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, JD students, what we would now call JD students. So we, we had a very large group and we were, out, we were outside of the mainstream of American legal thinking by then. Uh, and we were in a space of our own where we could pursue our ideas uh, largely without uh, uh, much uh, criticism or control from people within the law school or the rest of the world who might have thought that we were um, moving uh, in the wrong direction. And I think that space idea is essential to understand the rest of the history. So let, let, me, let me elaborate on that about the space, and, and I'm going to do so in terms of the people involved David's been referring to, but um, I certainly felt, and I think they would concur with this, that we learned as much from the people who came to Yale through the program as they could possibly have learned from us, especially since we didn't know anything at the time. <laughs> and I mentioned uh, Francis Snyder and Tom Heller. Uh, Francis had been doing a PhD at, uh, in Paris on land law in Senegal. He was deeply immersed in French anthropological theory, which was very different from anything I had, had co contact with. Uh, and he had done extensive field work as well, which I had not done. And Tom had come from Bogota. Dave can say more about that. I was also very much involved with the African graduate students who were there under, I think, Rockefeller money, not actually through our program. But because I was the only person doing African studies, um, I met them individually. I supervised their JSD theses and I taught them in various seminars. So I got to know a lot about what was happening in countries like Sudan and Ethiopia and Nigeria and Ghana and Malawi and Zambia, et cetera. Um, uh, so, so all of that was happening. Um, we invited Laura Nader and her students to come to Yale and 
held a conference about the book project, which was a beautiful, exciting experience. Um, uh, so there, there was a great deal of in intellectual ferment going on among all of these people. And I would just add to that um, the fact that parallel to our program in law and modernization, the Russell Sage program had launched uh, a, a program at Yale to bring uh, joint JD, PhD in social science, usually sociology or political science students uh, to Yale, either during their doctoral work or after their doctoral work. And we got to know them, especially Donald Black. The environments around in Yale at that time seemed especially important to creating the space and attracting the people that you were both just discussing. So what was that environment at Yale during the first five years of the program? And how did that influence law and modernization? Dave is right. It was an enclave. Again, from my perspective, what Yale wanted was basically half my teaching time. So I taught the basic torts class, I think, three times, and then I taught family law twice. And that was roughly half my teaching load. As long as I did that, they really weren't interested in what I did otherwise. Uh, there was no supervision. I could pick, pick and choose any courses that I wanted to teach. My research was entirely self-directed. And I had little or no contact with the, the rest of the faculty, which turned out to be disastrous from the point of view of tenure. But we'll get to that later. But I came across a quote that I want to read to you. Um, uh, and, and I'll explain how this, how this happened. Guido Calabresi saw the symposium, read it thoroughly, and wrote Dave and me about it very enthusiastically. And that launched a correspondence between Guido and me. I had known Guido before I came to Yale, in which he mentioned that Underhill Moore had had an anthropologist that he worked with, um, and that had been the way in which he entered into the field of law and social science. This is all before I came. I never met more, um, but I'm going to quote you something by, uh, of all people, uh, Justice Douglas, who had been a mentee of Moore. And this is what he wrote uh, in memory of Moore in 1950. The so-called legal lights ridicule my project. They do not understand it and it would be futile to try to make them understand. I am writing for them. I am writing for the small select group who are groping for ways of applying the scientific method to the social sciences. Perhaps the present effort will fail, but someday it may succeed. A hundred or 500 years from now, a kindred soul may find in my crude researches some clue to the solution. He is the audience for whom I write. Well, I like to think it didn't take 100 years, but I, I felt that Yale was largely indifferent, and then it turned out actually quite unsympathetic to what, what we were trying to do. Uh, not, not hostile because they didn't pay any attention to it, but there was little or no engagement. The other side of the story, that is, the, the, there's the story of the indifference of the faculty, but there's the story of the students in that period and I think we've already mentioned that, but the students, that is the, the JD students and the, the fellows who tended to be most of them, you know, about, you know, just the same age or roughly the same age, uh, doing master's degrees, a couple of years out of law school possibly, or, uh, or, or doing social science work on law. Uh, there was a ferment, uh, Yale was a center of a lot of uh, protest 
and uh, a political ferment. Uh, and that obviously uh, was going on and had an influence on what uh, was, uh, was happening. And within our enclave, as Rick described it, I'm probably more influenced than in uh, on the law school as a whole because we were uh, heavily um, represented. It, it, it was the, the the makeup of the group was 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 more sympathetic uh, to these new radical ideas and critiques than the law school faculty was. Let me just um, add add to that just to give you a sense of the cultural ambiance of. Yale in that period, roughly the late 60s to the mid 70s. So first of all, the number of women law students started to increase substantially. Dave can talk about that because his wife Louise was one of very few women in her class several years before that. Um, there was the beginning of an affirmative action program and a, 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 a very small beginning of minority students who had been entirely absent until that point. And then there was the political turmoil. So. There was a bombing of Cambodia, um, leading to large-scale protests and tanks uh, with semi-treads semi running down the streets of New Haven uh, and the National Guard mobilized and standing in the streets and tear gas being sprayed. There was a Black Panther trial. Um, and then there was a cultural dimension, the hog farm, um, uh, a hippie collective set up a, a tent in the courtyard and uh, did their thing. So it was a, a time of enormous ferment, and we we were somewhat marginal to that, but we were certainly influenced by it, and it certainly shaped the environment of the law school. And and a, a number of the students who were active in those protests uh, were students who were as under as JD students. Uh, Connected to the program of which Duncan Kennedy, of which Duncan Kennedy is the most uh, well-known example, but there were several. This really helps place for me the environment and the time uh, that you are dealing with at Yale. That really helps shape and develop this program. However, out of all this tumult, there came a lot of major accomplishments. Of course, so I want to go through this and see what came out of the program. So, to begin, what were some of the major accomplishments in legal studies? Well, CLS. I mean. Uh, the, the, the program directly led to critical legal studies. Uh, the initial discussions were take, took place within the program with me and Duncan and Mark Tushnet and Rand Rosenblatt, all of whom were in my seminar. And shortly after that, when Duncan had returned from the Supreme Court and was an assistant professor at Harvard. Uh, I visited with him and we uh, planned the uh, call to begin the conference on critical legal studies with ideas that had come out of our debates at Yale. And um, of the nine people who signed that original invitation to come to Madison, Wisconsin to found the Conference on Critical Legal Studies. Six had been involved in one way or another with the program in law and modernization. So I would say that, that uh, the creation of critical legal studies was the most significant outcome uh, 
in the world of law itself. And if that was the sole uh, development, that came, accomplishment that came out of this, that would be enough, but that is not it, of course. What other areas uh, did it accomplish in, say, law and society? As I said, that field was just beginning to emerge during these years. So the first uh, national meeting of the Law and Society Association didn't take place until after Dave and I had both left Yale, but, but, but we were strongly influenced by the people who became central figures in law and society. But Mark Lanter in many ways is even more important. So Mark came and spent a year in the program. Dave had already known him. I got to know Mark very well. Mark then became uh, an editor of the Law and Society Review. And at the end of his editorship, um, I, I, took the, I took that journal on. And that for me was my introduction into law and society studies. Um, so the, the, the field blossomed from, from that moment. And many of the people who were active in the field, again, Boaventura de Sousa Santos centrally, became leading figures in law and society. And I mean, just the names that you have mentioned in the past 20 minutes are just an astounding list of impactful law and academic faculty and staff and lawyers. It's really impressive to hear the number of people that have been involved in this in some way or the other. But the one last area I want to talk about the like, major accomplishments in is development studies and policy. So how did law and modernization uh, impact development studies? <laughs> it messed it up. It, 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 it broke the, the hold of modernization theory and simplistic legal transplant ideas and brought into that um, more critical thinking, um, a better understanding of the embeddedness of third world economies in the global economy and, and that issue as a question of both power and distribution of resources. So I think it, it opened up uh, and, and complexified what was at the time, a relatively simple narrative of, of one, you know, of unilinear growth uh, along the tradition to modernity uh, scale and, and America standing at its peak and American law being the obvious uh, goal for law and development. I think we, we did that. Um, so we, we did a much better job of un raveling the uh, old than we did in terms of creating a whole new vision. But maybe that was a good thing because there was really no, no real single vision that was possible or desirable. I would add to that, that again, from my, from my experience and perspective, the kind of legal anthropology that I had been reading and that I was then trying to produce myself Tended to tended to the micro. It, it tended to look at disputing in very small scale settings, especially in villages, um, and to understand uh, specific events. It was it was a very internal perspective. A, a larger external perspective was developing, was was occurring at the time, was emerging at the time, which I only began to learn about later. So again, for instance. Um, th there was a book written by Colin Lays about uh, underdevelopment in Kenya, which came out again after, after this period, which transformed my thinking toward, in the direction of macroeconomic and more global 
perspectives. I think the same thing happened to Boaventura de Souza Santos, who went to Brazil, studied disputing within a particular favela, uh, and then developed a, a, a macro perspective, which has become enormously influential subsequently. But, but, but we were at a moment of ferment in which um, the, the macro perspective was only beginning to be constructed. So we mostly discussed the happy aspects of the law and modernization program with the last question. So let's pivot to the short part. Why was the program terminated? There were two things were terminated. Me and Rick were terminated and the program were terminated. The, the, we were terminated first and then the program was terminated. So there are two really different, although related issues. So I think that Rick has already suggested that we got uh, we were quite distant from the core of the Yale Law School faculty in a time when they were under siege by radical students with whom we were somewhat associated, particularly Duncan Kennedy being the most visible of those who overlapped with us and, and, and the radical movement of the students. Um, and, and, um, and we also had ventured out into new scholarly fields that weren't very well understood. And perhaps uh, we were feeling our way. Certainly in my case, I was feeling my way. Uh, there were no very no, few precedents to follow. I was trying to build an interdisciplinary approach um, without being trained in any other discipline. Uh, and, and so it was time consuming, but also perhaps you know, mistakes made. So, I, and they were unsympathetic. The faculty was unsympathetic to the whole <laughs> enterprise. I think the core of the faculty was unsympathetic to our enterprise uh, as a purely intellectual matter. And then they were uh, concerned about the potential radicalism of all the junior faculty. So we were not the only junior faculty. In fact, I'm, I don't have the exact numbers, but I would say of the seven or eight assistant professors who were there when, when I started, only one of us got tenure and everybody else was terminated. So we were part of a kind of a of the slaughter of the innocents that had nothing necessarily to do with the law and modernization program. So it was a triple thing. That's, I believe, why we were terminated. And, and of course, it showed that they didn't care about the program because it, without us, the program lost its main engine and main driving force and main intellectual uh, uh, leadership uh, at the faculty level. Um, so then it, you move on to the termination two years later. It was taken over by two people uh, uh, on the faculty who moved it in back in more conventional uh, directions of training uh, uh, foreign lawyers in American legal, uh, uh, in the American legal system and how to transplant it. I think that was a, a pretty much what happened to it. Um, AID lost interest in the program. I think that had more to do with shifts within AID than anything particular about our program, but I've never gone back and tried to understand that. Um, uh, and and uh, uh, there was a general decline of interest in law and development. The Ford Foundation, which had put a lot of money into that field, 
uh, had stopped supporting it. So I think, I think though that it was a combination of they they lost the leadership. There was no energy left at the Yale side, and the AID was no longer uh, interested in in law, and maybe had not been particularly interested in it for a while. And this just took a little bit of time to, uh, you know, get realized. Um, I would I would just add to that because Dave has given a very thorough um, account of the. Um, termination from the perspective of both Yale and especially AID. Again, some personal anecdotes. So uh, your listeners should know that Laura Kalman has written a book about what happened at Yale during this period. It's a superb history and it details all of this far, far more than we can do here. I'm gonna give you three anecdotes very briefly. Um, when I came up for tenure, I made a point of going and knocking on the doors and talking to the members of the appointments committee, some of whom I probably had never talked to in the previous five years, which of course was my fatal mistake. So I went to Joe Goldstein because I had been teaching family law and I basically inherited that class from him. I had used his case book the first time around and then developed my own materials the second time around. And I wanted to talk to him about what I was doing in developing the course. And I said, among other things, I thought it was a very exciting time to be teaching family law because this was the second wave of feminism. And I thought that that had the potential to transform the family in ways that we couldn't yet envisage to which Joe said, I don't think so. And that was the end of that interview. I went to see Ralph Winter, subsequently a federal judge um, and explained to him that I took a social science perspective and which, with which he might be unfamiliar and I wanted to tell him something about my social science perspective. And he said, that's not my objection. And that was the end of that interview. And in, in the last year, uh, my last year, the year after Dave had left, when I was directing the program by myself, USAID came up to do a site visit, the only time they did so, in order to determine whether they wanted to renew the program. Yale was very eager to get more money and indeed got, Dave can tell you, I think $700,000 for a couple more years. So USAID came up. Um, they obviously wanted to talk to me as the director of the program. And Yale put a minder on me so that I never talked to the USAID people without another faculty member present to make sure that I didn't say anything that would be um, uh, antipathetic to Yale's purpose. So it was clear that Yale wanted us out and wanted to take over the program uh, and remake it in ways that had literally nothing to do with what we had been doing in the previous five or six years. Interesting. Definitely sounds like the leash was shortened and tightened. And then, the, as you mentioned, Professor Trubeck, that the intellectual engine was removed and Yale kind of pulled it back in a more traditional way. So the symposium issue itself was published in a Brazilian journal. How did that come about? Uh, Rick and I decided to have a, a roundtable on the program uh, at the Law and Society meeting uh, this, earlier this year. Uh, and it was virtual, so we were able to get all these people easily to participate. They didn't have to go someplace. Uh, and we picked uh, the four of us who were uh, among the best known of the people who were in the program. And then we reached out to two uh, people who were observers of the program, uh, uh, 
Bryant Garth, who's written extensively on the history of legal education, legal reform, uh, global legal development, and Aphrodite Giovanna Paolo, who is a, uh, uh, doing a graduate degree uh, on the history of the use of law in American foreign policy and had worked with Duncan and knew quite a bit about the program from Duncan. Um, so we reached out to them and, and they just gave oral presentations of 15 minutes. Um, it was a round table, there were no papers. Two days later, we get a, after the thing ended, we get a, a message from this Brazilian law journal. They had a number of the editors had listened to this uh, online presentation and they, they offered to publish the papers if we could get them within two weeks, two months. There were no papers. And, but people were so excited about the idea of publishing and publishing in a Brazilian journal, which was itself a great signal because here is a very sophisticated journal, quite aware of global development in a, in a Brazilian uh, law school, uh, a sign that the uh, academic project that law and modernization program had, had sought to uh, promote, that is to build up the capacity to study uh, law and society in, um, in, in the developing world had been accomplished, not necessarily by us, but, but we had had an influence. And in Brazil, particularly, I had had an influence because I devoted my life to this. Uh, so I thought it was what we were thought it was a great symbolic thing to publish in the Brazilian journal. And we made it, we put it together. And then thanks to, to Wisconsin, we managed to get it on SSRN with the encouragement of the Brazilian journal, I want to be clear. Um, and so I, it has a nice symbolic uh, as well as practical um, uh, result because, um, and, and just to top it off, two minutes before we started this podcast discussion, Rick and I got a message from the uh, editors of the Brazilian Journal who are teaching a course in, um, at, in the uh, university in Rio, and they want us to reprise the, uh, to, to do a reprise of the event or some follow-up uh, for their students in January. So we're, <laughs> here we are sort of moving around the world with this story. That's amazing. I'm glad that worked out so well. Two months to turn this around and publish a whole symposium issue is really impressive and amazing. Uh, speaking of, the symposium has six articles in it. You've alluded to most of them, but can you tell us a little bit about each one of those? Let's dig in and see what these articles are all about. So uh, I'm going to talk about three uh, of the stories, my, mine, Duncan Kennedy's, and Brian Garth. And I think that it's important to note that we've got here three generations. That is, I graduated from college in 57 and law school in 61. Duncan graduated from college in 64 and from the law school in 70. And Brian Garth graduated from college in 72 and from law school in 75. So we've got three generations and, and it fits very neatly in, in the evolving story because in my story, which is about how I came to write the article Scholars in Self-Estrangement, which is, is, was what I really got out of this whole experience and was a, a, an inspiration for critical legal studies and other uh, critical work. Um, it, this my story. I started without any background in any of this and as a lawyer in, in USAID, as I said, 
trying to figure out why aid didn't have a law and a law and development program. And then the, the, the story goes through this whole Yale experience uh, and concludes with an explanation of how we develop the critique of modernization theory and the role that Duncan Kennedy particularly played in changing my whole way of thinking and how that played out over time with interaction with other students like Boa Santos, who was also there uh, and was summarized in that article. So that's my story. And it's a story of somebody who starts with really no critical background and ends up uh, with a very strong critical vision and, 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 and so on. So Duncan's story is somewhat different because he came to Yale already exposed to critical theories of development, which he'd learned not at Harvard, where he was an undergraduate, but in France, uh, where he had um, uh, spent a, a year or two uh, and had followed uh, French uh, theory and also French politics, which were at a particular turbulent uh, period. And he'd had real world experience as in, in development work, in, in, in hands-on development work in Africa. So by the time Duncan had gotten to the Yale Law School, before we had any encounters, he was already developing an, what he calls an anti-imperialist left approach um, that understood the situation of third world countries as one of economic dominance exercise through the rules of economic life and, of course, foreign uh, countries playing an important role in that dominance. And I think that for Duncan, the Yale program created a space to develop an approach that he already was sort of nurturing even before he came uh, to, um, to uh, Yale Law School and, and to be able to develop that and apply it to the, to the particular aspects of law. And that, of course, led to CLS. So that's Duncan's story. And Brian's story, because our stories are the stories of participants. Brian's is the story of an observer. And he notes that he, he was exposed to modernization theory itself when he was in college. So you see, we're, we're, we're going through three different generations of engagement with this whole material. And he came across scholars and self-estrangement uh, when he was in, in law school, thanks to a visiting professor. He doesn't quite say it, but there was obviously no critical thought or, 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 or anything like that at Stanford Law School at the time. That's in the, the mid-70s. Um, although there was the beginning of law and society uh, discussions there. He, he tries to put this whole thing in a broader context in which he tries to show that the the law modernization program itself with its original reformist, you know, American oriented approach was part of a turn in the American legal liberal establishment that led to things like public interest law uh, and other uh, domestic moves. And he tries to situate that, uh, that is the law modernization program originally in that kind of frame um, and obviously, um, which he describes, and here's, here's a quote, uh, the reform programs all embraced a moderate and moderately idealistic third way between capitalism and communism, but they all fizzled out. 
and uh, that led to the fragmentation of scholarship. And I just want to read you this quote because I think it really captures the, the, the whole story. The law and modernization program helped to kill the antiquated scholarship and politics of the liberal legalist welfare state and the program of reform abroad through modernization. The theories and ideas produced by that challenge did not find winning political sponsors, but they played a crucial role in developing critical approaches that helped upgrade legal scholarship and they continue to inspire new generations seeking alternatives to today's complacent establishment theories. So I'm happy to have that as the epitaph on the program. What a legacy. Uh, Professor Abel, can you talk about the other three articles? Uh, yes, so I've, I've, I've already talked about my article in a sense because my article is very much a memoir, an, uh, an intellectual autobiography of the kinds of literature I was reading, the impact that my fieldwork in Kenya had had on me, and then the courses I was teaching and the articles I was writing when I was at Yale. So uh, I was trying to develop um, a social science a theoretical framework that I could use to make sense out of the changes that I was seeing in the primary courts in Kenya. That was my field, field research itself. Um, and uh, that's what that's most of what I did while, while I was at Yale. I, I wrote about that. And then when I left Yale, I came to UCLA, where I spent the rest of my academic career. Uh, and the the the, the connection between those two experiences was largely the fact that I inherited the Law and Society Review, which I edited. I also edited something called African Law Studies, which was a more uh, area studies focus. Um, and then I moved on into other fields, but always with a law and social science perspective. Um, so there's a, a sense, and I was active in critical legal studies, both as a member of the uh, organizing committee and as a participant in virtually all of its meetings. Um, let me go on to Boa, whom I'll talk about at some length, and Aphrodite, whom I'll say less about because I, I know her less well. So but Boa came to Yale to do uh, JSD, uh, and he came from a very conventional, and I believe con he would agree, constricted uh, European uh, doctrinal perspective. He had done his legal training in Portugal, and then he had gone to Berlin, where he had spent a year or two and absorbed uh, an even more rigid, more narrowly doctrinal approach. Um, and he came to Yale, uh, I think actually to study with Joe Goldstein and Abe Goldstein, to do work on um, the, the general part of criminal law, uh, the law of intent, the insanity defense, the, those kinds of uh, very abstract and largely doctrinal issues. I'm not sure exactly how he moved from there to affiliate with us, but he certainly did that. And he did also strongly connect with the other graduate students who are coming from around the world. I should add that Boa came to Yale um, as not only not a Marxist, but probably an anti-Marxist. Um, he had seen uh, a Marxist regime in East Germany because he had an East German girlfriend and was quite repelled by it. Um, and 
although he had started to read Marx on his own, he certainly was not, did not see himself as a radical. He was very attracted to Brazil, as many people in Portugal are, in particular because one and maybe both of his grandfathers had lived there, and he had very much wanted to see it. Uh, so he prepared himself for the research by devouring the anthropological literature, by connecting with Laurie Nader, with whom he became quite close, uh, and then went off to Brazil and had this transformative experience of living and working in a favela and seeing um, poverty from the inside and the ways in which a desperately poor community had created its own legal system in opposite, in, outside of the formal legal system and in many ways in opposition to it. Um, and, and the rest is history. That's the base on which Boa built. He went back to Portugal. He ended up in a social science department rather than a law school. Portugal was in turmoil. Um, both Mozambique and, uh, and Angola became independent and the dictatorship ended. Um, so uh, th this was for, for Boa a transformative experience. And I think uh, it, it's the experience that shaped him for the rest of his life. Um, Aphrodite, I know less about. She is a, a masterful historian, like all historians. She has read everything that's ever been written. Um, and she has uh, this perspective from 30,000 feet of what was happening uh, in American foreign policy and the ways in which law and lawyers were involved in that. And um, I, I, I'm not going to try to, to summarize or encapsulate her article, but it 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 is uh, it, it is masterful, and she will undoubtedly shape her dissertation into a book, which will include some of her re reflections on the law and modernization program as a as an instance of the ways in which American law and lawyers interacted with the third world. You use the word masterful. That is the word I was actually going to use to describe her article and the entire symposium issue. It's really a great gamut of articles that uh, explain what happened from the beginning for the people that were there to the impact it has. So really, thank you for going over each one of those articles individually. To wrap up, where can people find more of your works? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I think my, apparently there's a Wikipedia article about me, which I never heard about, which I think is, it may be somewhat misleading. And then, of course, my CV and all my publications are on the UCLA Law School website. Uh, you would be well advised not to try to read through those from beginning to end. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the easiest thing is also the Wisconsin repository on uh, that's uh, under my name on, and on the Wisconsin website is the most comprehensive uh, source. We'll link to both the UCLA School of Laws uh, list for Professor Abel and to the Wisconsin repository for Professor Trubeck, and we'll also link out to the SSRN page for this article so everyone can find it, quickly download it, and read the entire issue, which is really wonderful. So Professor Trubeck and Professor Abel, thank you both for joining us today. We've been discussing the short, happy life of the Yale program in law and modernization, from the Cold War to comparative legal sociology and critical legal studies, published in the May-August issue of the Journal of Institutional Studies. Thanks to everyone for listening. I hope that by now you're subscribed to the Wisconsin Law in Action podcast. But if you aren't, you can find us in the Apple iTunes store or on Stitcher or listen to our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu, where we discuss a wide range of legal topics from intellectual property to environmental law. See you next time and happy researching.